Cortland Computer Services presents the Baseball Lifer Podcast. Well, hi there. Don Wardlow here, your baseball lifer in residence. Today we're going to have author Rich Marazzi on the program. His upcoming book called Yankee Stories Untold from Ruth to Jeter. And we'll talk more about that with Rich during his segment. And one of the things he's done during his career has been to work with Mel Allen as one of Mel's researchers. And so I thought this week would be a good week to have Mel Allen as the broadcaster of the week. I could have a whole episode all about Mel Allen. I thought I'd share just a few very special moments from his lengthy career. He was born Melvin Allen Israel when he went to CBS in the 1930s. CBS wanted him to do what most of their on-air talent was doing, and that was change their names. And so he went with Mel Allen. Walter Lanier Barber went as Red Barber, and the Tigers, Ty Tyson, he was born Edwin Wayne Tyson. But these guys, in a lot of cases, were asked to change their names, and those are some of the names they went with. Mel Allen got his first taste of radio when he was at the University of Alabama. He was their public address announcer for a while, and then he did play-by-play football on the radio. And he did college football. He did a number of Rose Bowls. He was still doing college football in the late 1960s. So when Mel Allen came out of college, he had a law degree, which he promptly put on the shelf, and he went to New York for a little vacation, and that little vacation lasted almost 30 years. He got his job with CBS, his first serious sports broadcasting. He was the color commentator for the 1938 World Series, the Yankees and the Cubs. Now, the first sound we're going to play for you comes from June 12, 1939. The Hall of Fame was opening in Cooperstown, New York. And what you're going to hear really made me smile because I often talk about interviewing Bob Murphy, which I did when I was 31, and he was about to go to the Hall of Fame. Mel Allen, at the age of 26, is about to interview Ty Cobb, arguably the greatest ball player up until that point. The man with the 367 batting average, the man who always thought he was better than Babe Ruth. And so you're going to hear a starstruck Mel Allen, if you can believe it, interviewing Ty Cobb. Ladies and gentlemen, this is one of the greatest thrills I've ever had since I've been in radio, to be very frank with you. Because standing to my right is a man who was one of my idols when I was in knee pants, so to speak. That doesn't make him so very old, because I'm not so very old. But the man I'm talking about is a member of the Hall of Fame, one of the greatest baseball players that has ever lived. None other than the Georgia Peach, Ty Cobb. Mr. Cobb, would you say a few words to our radio audience, please? Well, ladies and gentlemen, 
There isn't much that I can say except that I feel very much honored and very happy to be here this day. One of baseball, baseball's most eventful day with a great many notables here and it's very interesting to meet lots of old friends and be here on uh, this dedication to the Hall of Fame. And now I want to ask you this question. While you were seated up in the stands watching baseball as it was played when it was first started in 1839 as town ball and then again in 1850, I wonder what thoughts ran through your mind as you thought of the years that you spent in modern-day baseball as compared with the baseball that you saw played so far this afternoon. Well, i say one thing. Those boys that are out there giving us a demonstration how the old time players played, I, I tell you, they're pretty good. <laughs> and uh, I think they were just about as clever in their day as uh, we might have been in our day. Well, and now before you go, I know you want to get back. I understand you're playing pretty good golf these days. How's your game? Well, do you want to make a game with me, or do you want to know from me how I'm playing? I want to know from you how you're playing. I'm well, playing. <laughs> I, I'm playing pretty good, but if you want to get a game with me, why, well, I'm playing terrible, and I <laughs> want a handicap. <laughs> All right. Thank you very, very much. Ty Cobb. Following the 1938 World Series, where Mel Allen did color commentary, Wheaties wanted him to go to Washington and do the Washington Center games for 1939. Uh, there was one small problem. Clark Griffith, the Washington owner, wanted the big train, Walter Johnson, to be his play-by-play -play man. And what the owner wanted is what the owner got. So Mel was derailed by the big train, at least for half a season. In mid-season 1939, Mel Allen was color commentator for both the Yankees and the Giants, working with Arch McDonald. But McDonald went back to Washington, and Mel Allen was the broadcaster for both the Yankees and the Giants. They just broadcast their home games. So he did that in 1940. There were no broadcasts at all in 1941, and then Mel was back in 1942, and then he was off to war for three years. And when he came back after World War II, Mel started doing the World Series in earnest. He did the World Series between 1947 and 1963, leaving out only one year, and that year was 1954, when the Yankees were not involved, and it was the Indians and the Giants. Other than that, if the World Series was on, Mel was there for either TV or radio. What I'm going to let you hear now is from 19... 49 from October 2nd. This is the last game of the American League season, and only one team can go to the playoffs then under the rules. And the Red Sox and Yankees were tied. So, this one game, even though it was a regular season game, it amounted to be a one game playoff. So, what you're about to hear is in the eighth inning of that game. The Yankees are ahead 2-0. The bases are full. Jerry Coleman, who would later become a broadcaster in his own right, he's at the plate, and Mel Allen describes what happened next. All right, Houston going to work. Probably fired that person right through there. Here's the pitch. One on, a little looper in the short right field. Gorilla comes fast, and he can get it! 
Here comes Bauer. Here comes Johnson. Here comes Mace looking for the plate. And Mace scores down there. Three, and there's a throw to third. And Coleman is on it third for three runs score. And Gorilla is hurt in right field. A looping single in the right field. Gorilla tied desperately for the shoestring pen. But a ton of mistakes. Al Gorilla tried desperately for the shoestring pass, and he almost got it, and he didn't quite make it, and he hurt, and three runs scored. That put the Yankees ahead five to nothing. They needed that three-run hit. Boston got three runs in the top of the ninth, and the final was five to three, sending the Yankees to the World Series for 1949. This is the Baseball Lifer Podcast. Don Wardlow here doing our baseball broadcaster of the week, and it's about Mel Allen, because our guest, Rich Marazzi, did research for Mel Allen. Now, the next Mel Allen sound I'm going to let you hear is from Game 5, the 1949 World Series. It's at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn, and Joe DiMaggio is at home plate. Two up and two away, and here's Joe DiMaggio, who twice has been the victim of spectacular catches by center fielder Duke Snyder. In the first inning, Duke went to the wall in straight center field, deep center field, the 393-foot sign leaped and caught DiMaggio's drive over his head. Here's your delivery inside to Joe for a ball. The last time that DiMaggio was up, he drilled a smart liner into center, and Snyder came running in at top speed and gloved it about a foot off the ground. Joe with that classic stance of his bat cocked up off his right shoulder on the next pitch swings and sends a long drive that stays failed all the way. It is going, it is going, it is gone. The Maggio made sure this time nobody was going to make a spectacular catch and the boys greet him because he's had a rough series in the base hit department and the entire team frankly came out and met him in front of the dugout and patted him on the back. Mel Allen describing... Jolton Joe, he hung that nickname on Joe DiMaggio, and he described a home run that propelled the Yankees to victory. They won that game 10-6, to and that was the end of the 1949 World Series. Now, the last sound I'm going to share with you is from near the end of Mel's first Yankee career. He had a second Yankee career starting when the Yankees started to get good again in the 1970s. Once Steinbrenner bought the club. So it's the Labor Day weekend, Yankees Tigers. And they were the two teams that year in 1961. It was going to be one or the other. And the Yankees had their own race going on. They had Nicky Mantle and Roger Maris duking it out to try and beat the Babes home run record. So on September 3rd, 1961, 61, the Tigers had just gotten ahead in the ballgame by a 5-4 to four score in the last of the ninth as Mickey Mantle came to the plate and Mel Allen describes what happened next. Mantle, who homered in the first inning, struck out twice since coming up. Barra on deck. The Detroit Tigers jumping on the opportunity as befits the team that has played the great kind of ball they have all year. Leading now 5-4. to four. The one nothing pitch to make. Swung on. That's a high drive to deep right field. Look out now. K-line. He is not going to play the homer. 
Mickey Mantle just hit his 50th home run of the year into the bleachers, and it's a tie ball game. Mickey hit it into the right field bleachers, his second of the game, his 50th of the season. He now ranks eighth, number eight among the all-time home run hitters. Mel Allen describing Mickey's home run number 50. The Yankees would go on and win that game on a three-run home run by Elston Howard from September of 1961. Mel Allen was fired at the end of 1964 and, in fact, not allowed to do the World Series because of his firing, but he came back, and as I said earlier, he had a second Yankee life. He did games on Sports Channel, Yankees Cable TV, in the late 70s into the 80s, and one of his highlights during that time was he got to call Dave Rigetti's no-hitter on July 4th, 1983, a blazing hot day at Yankee Stadium. But Mel Allen got to call that one. After he was done with the Yankees, he got into this week in baseball. If you're of a certain age, you know this week in baseball. You remember watching Mel Allen and listening to him describe the highlights as that quaint old show appeared on the air on the weekends. Sometimes if you were at a ball game in a rain delay, they would show episodes of This Week in Baseball at the ballpark while you waited to see if you were going to get baseball weather. Mel Allen is our Baseball Broadcaster of the Week on the Baseball Lifer podcast. And the man I'm about to interview did research for Mel Allen in his career, and that's writer Rich Marazzi. He's next, if you keep it where it is, on the Baseball Lifer podcast. I am having such a problem at work. This is the second time this month I have had two computers down, and I can't get my computer company to come to the office and fix them. I think they are too busy with other bigger companies. You know, I was having the same problem until we met Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office. Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when the computers are not working properly. I need somebody that can come out, see what's wrong, and fix it. On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the internet these days. They have been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years, and they have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web at courtlandcomputerservices.com or by phone at 732-356-8860, 732-356-8860, courtlandcomputerservices.com. Tell them you heard about it on the Baseball Lifer podcast and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of computer services. Back on the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Wardlow here with Rich Marazzi author of several books and the newest one that's coming out at the end of March, and it's called Yankee Stories Untold, an insider's memoir from Ruth to Jeter. Got to look for this one if you're a baseball fan, if you're especially a Yankee fan. Rich, 
welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan. Enjoy being here. One of the chapters I had time to look at was about your first major league game. And I would have my own first visit to Shea 18 years later in 1972. So tell our audience about your first trip to the house that Ruth built. Well, it was July 21st, 1954. And I, I was 10 years old. And I went with the YMCA on a, on a bus trip. And um, I was so excited, and because uh, all I, I've seen Yankee baseball those since I, I guess since 1950, basically, on a black and white television screen, and um, uh, to pull up outside Yankee Stadium and see that triple deck in the awnings, um, it was it was a surreal experience. And uh, we set up in a third deck in left field, and to see the the, the beautiful green lawn and. My baseball cards come alive, like Mickey Mantle and um, so many others, Hank Bauer, Gene Whittling, Minnie Minoso, uh, uh, Nellie Fox, Jim Rivera. Uh, it, it was just a great experience. And uh, I think my mother gave me $2.25. And uh, uh, I bought a Yankee yearbook with that, a hot dog, and I think an orange juice. And it was a day I'll never forget. The, the only bad part of it was that the White Sox won 15 to 3. And um, kind of spoiled my day, but it's a day I'll never forget. And I think ever since that day, when I go into Yankee Stadium, I, I still feel excited. Now, was that the same Jim Rivera who five years later in 59 would make an absolutely unreal catch for the White Sox in the World Series? Same guy? That's right. They, they call him Jungle Jim Rivera. That's right. Did you always figure that writing about baseball would be the way to go for you? No. When I was when I went as a kid, though, I remember dabbling with um, like writing a short story, but I never thought I would uh, be authoring books or working as a rules consultant with the Yankees and many other teams. I was telling my wife yesterday, a matter of fact, they said, who would think that I would become a baseball rules consultant one day for the Yankees or any other team? Because um, as a kid, I never thought about being an umpire even. So then I became an umpire and as interested in the rules, and I realized that um, the players and coaches never really had any intense, intense training about the rules. And so I developed this program in 2004 called Rule Ball. And I was first hired by the Yankees. Brian Cashman hired me. And since then, I've worked for 24 of the 30 major league teams. So it's worked out very well. And um, you never know when you're young, uh, the twists and turns in life you're going to take, like you yourself, who would think you'd be working in New Britain, broadcasting for a baseball team when you were a kid, you know? You just never know. Exactly. I thought I was going to be a disc jockey. Uh -huh. I wanted to play country records, Johnny Cash and Tom T. Hall and all that good stuff. Yeah. But in I, think I, used to, I think I used to um, maybe want to be a broadcaster. I used to try to imitate Mel Allen a lot, I remember, as a kid. And fortunately, during my lifetime, I had a chance to work with him. I worked with him as a, as a, as a researcher, and I got to know Mel very well and even visited my parents' home one night. And it, it was amazing because where we sat in the living room, uh, virtually across the street when I was a kid, I was sitting on the curb with a popsicle stick and broadcast like I was Mel Allen and two older kids in the neighborhood. They'd be having a catch and I make believe I was Mel Allen broadcasting the Yankee players like Vic Rashi and Allie Reynolds and so forth. So I think as a kid, I might have wanted to been a broadcaster because even late in the evening, um, one, two o'clock in the morning, I would sit in my spare room 
I look out the window on a warm yeah. summer night and um, have a walkie-talkie in my hand and make believe I was broadcasting a baseball game. So maybe that was my first uh, love years ago. Of course, I always wanted to be a major league baseball player. I didn't have the ability, though. I did play high school and college baseball, but um, there was never had the ability to sign to sign with an organized baseball team. But I think broadcasting was um, a part of my life. And eventually, I did a um, a cable TV show, a sports t- a cable TV show, and uh, and then I did a, a a radio show called Inside Yankee Baseball. Um, from 1997, we did that for about, I think it was uh, maybe 13 years. And it was on WICC in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and later uh, on, uh, in, in, in the Haven, and then, which was an extension of a ESPN station, too. So that was a great experience, having many former players on my show as guests and so on. So um, I kind of lived a dream. And in the 50s, um, I collected baseball cards like most other kids. And I co-authored a book with a fellow from Seattle, Washington, in 82, called Aaron Tzuverink. We took every player who appeared in the box score between um, 50 and 59, and we, we, we um, followed them, followed, followed their baseball career, what they did after their baseball days. And that was a great experience. And my baseball cars truly came alive then because I was able to interview so many of them, and it was just a great experience. So I, I've been lucky in my life to... I've been blessed, actually, to um, uh, to do something, a labor of love that turned into a avocation that turned into a vocation. Man, am I glad you brought up the book from Aaron to Zuberink, because I was all set here to pronounce that name wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's certainly something I want to talk to a, a, a little bit more. My guest is Rich Marazzi. The book is... Yankee Stories Untold, an insider's memoir from Ruth to Jeter. It's coming out the end of March. Keep an eye open for that. I could not imagine as a broadcaster spending considerable time with one of the very first Ford Frick Award winners, Mel Allen. Uh How did that come about and what did you do with Mel? Well, I always idolized Mel Allen because as a kid growing up, I... I heard broadcasts like Mel Allen and Kurt Gotti and uh, Red Barber and so on. And um, to me, Mel Allen was he was the he was the voice of my summers, basically. Okay, in the radio. And um, I think it was 1978. I was writing for a small publication, baseball publication in, in Wisconsin called the Diamond Report. And um, I decided to give him a call to see if, if I could come down to his condo in Greenwich, Connecticut, and interview him. And when I, first of all, I had to get his number for an operator. I was surprised that he was even listed in a phone book. And when she gave me his number, I, I got kind of nervous. I, don't, I, I got kind of nervous. Yeah. I said, I don't know if I even want this, you know? Anyway, I did call him. And um, he said, I'm very busy right now, Rich. He said, call me in a couple of weeks and we'll work things out. Well, I thought he was blowing me off. I didn't know, you know, what was going on. And I did call him a couple of weeks and he was very friendly. He said, come on down to my condo in Greenwich. And it began a great a relationship. Um, I worked with him uh, uh, on a project called, it was a Hartford Insurance Project, where it, we covered all sports, really. It was it was like um, one-minute spots. 45 seconds was the actual content. I, I, I did the writing. It could have been baseball, football stories, boxing, and Hartford Insurance Company. It was a national syndicated thing. And, and then I, did the, I, I worked with him, too, when he was um, – 
when he was doing some broadcasting with the Yankees after he retired several years later, uh, I did like an in-between, a doubleheader show with him that I was the research writer. So I got to know Mel very well, and I had him on my radio, on my TV show years ago. And after the show, I went down to the Ansonia Mall, um, where my wife was part of a junior women's group, and they had a cancel fundraising day, and Mel came down, his sister was with him, and then I asked him if he'd come to my parents' house later, which he did. And so, and I've devoted one chapter in my book to Mel Allen, and it's just been a great experience. On the Baseball Lifer podcast with author Rich Marazzi, one of the things you've mentioned to me before we took to the air was a group called the Silver Sluggers, you and Chris Gallo, who's been a great booster of my blog back when I had that, Baseball As I See It. He's, to this day, a member of the group, Baseball As I See It, on Facebook. So give me some more details about what the Silver Sluggers group is and what it does. Well, in 2006, the director of the Derby Public Library, which is one town away from me, but about a mile away, uh, she said some guys there wanted to know if I'd come in for a few hours, um, for like for four weeks, an hour a day, and talk sports or talk baseball. So I said, okay, I'll do it. And I went, uh, we began in, in for one hour with a group of about 12, 13 guys. Every week it grew and grew and grew. And 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 before you know it, we had um, 15, 20 guys. And, and um, to make a long story short, we've been there since 2006. We've had almost 500 meetings so far. We're working on Derby Public Library, and it's a group of dedicated baseball fans. And we cover current and past baseball. I show video. People do reports. It's almost like school to an extent. I'm a former school teacher, by the way. And um, so I kind of conduct a class like that, shall we say. But but I try to engage as many people as possible. We work on controversial topics. And um, uh, Chris Gallo is a great contributor. he wrote a great book about the uh, uh, about the Trumbull Little League team that won the World Series, I believe it was 1989. And so um, it's just a group of dedicated guys and, and ladies. And um, we have a wonderful time, basically. And so um, uh, before the pandemic, we were getting about 75 to almost 100 for every meeting. So it, it grew from 2006 to 2020 to almost 75, 80 every week. And they come from different parts of the state mostly from the Nehaven and Bridgeport area, Fairfield County and Haven County area, and uh, the Valley area where, where, where I live. And I met so many people over the years and we've developed uh, some, some great relationships. We go out to dinner, we have parties like that. And it's, it's just been uh, one of the, probably the most fun thing I've ever done in my life. It's casual. I can go there with jeans on, with a sweatshirt or whatever. We have Silver Slugger t-shirts. I named it Silver Sluggers because most of us are retirees. Most of us are over 60 with gray hair. So I call us the Silver Sluggers. And we have guests, too. We have people that come into the um, group, like George Grant, former broadcaster. We've had several former umpires who have um, talked to us, who have lectured to us and so forth. And uh, it's been a great group. That sounds like a whole lot of fun. I'm talking with Rich Marazzi, who's done a whole lot of everything from writing to broadcasting to the Silver Sluggers group. Talk to me about the From Aaron to Zuberink book. How did you go from concept 
to actual book, because that's quite a project looking at the players of the 1950s. Well, first of all, the first book I wrote was called The Rules and Law of Baseball. I took every rule in the game of baseball, and I found plays that made the rule come alive through research and so on. Um, I was a member of the Society of American Baseball Research, and they put out a directory. And um, in the directory, they have all of the uh, members listed and their main interests. I noticed there was a guy from Seattle, Washington named Len Fiorito, and his interest was um, researching players from the 1950s, like, where have you gone? And so I did a, I was doing a newspaper column locally here called Let's Talk Baseball. I said, well, that would make an interesting column. So I contacted Len, and he says, what do you want? I said, well, I'll take whatever you want to give me. He, he had already done a lot of research on it. He sent me a list of about, about 800 players, what they did in their post-playing careers, like Gus Zerniel and, and Rocky Calavito and Ferris Fain, and, of course, many many Yankees and Red Sox players. And, and so this led to a great relationship, and we decided uh, he came out here in 1979, and we took our families to Cooperstown to the Hall of Fame. And um, while our wives are with our young babies in the hotel room, Lynn and I went out to get pizza, and we were in a pizza parlor, and we decided to put together a book called, you know, From A to Z, Hank Aaron to George Zuverink. It's like an encyclopedic listing of every player from from Z, uh, from Hank Aaron to George Zuverink. Even if you appeared on one box score, you're in the book. And we did like little bios of each player and what happened, what they did after their playing career. Like Walt Dropo, uh, he got into the fireworks business and people went into all kinds of different occupations. Uh, we have lawyers, we have doctors, we have plumbers. We have carpenters. We have people from all different levels of life. And it was fascinating. And um, I think it was the most prolific and extensive book ever written regarding what players did in their in, following their baseball careers. So don't forget, most of these guys who played in the 50s, many of them uh, were in World War II. And I call this, many of them, the greatest generation. And um, uh, many, like for Yogi Berra served in Normandy. Bob Feller was a, was a great World War II hero. And I can go on and on and on, um, but um, I, there were many stories. And so in the current book I'm just doing with the Yankees, I took many stories that I got from years ago from players. And I incorporated into the current book uh, about their various experiences. And um, it's just been a lifetime full of baseball memories for me, Don. When it came to getting the Aaron to Zuberink book published, yeah, did, did you find any difficulty any question about well now who's going to read a book about the players from the 1950s yeah well first of all i had the 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 rules of laura baseball book published by stein and day in new york and um i had rejections for several books uh, for several different publishers but uh there was there was a there was an editor at stein and day who loved baseball his name was art ballant and he's, he, he loved my project called The Rules and Lore of Baseball. So I was already published before I got to Aaron to Zuverink. So when, Aaron, when we had the idea of Aaron to Zuverink, our, our, our battle liked that also. And Stein and Day, they, they, they actually published that a book. So they, they printed 2,500 hard copies that sold out, I believe. Then Avon Books in New York, they um, purchased the copy back right, the paperback rights. And I think they sold 50,000 of those books. And so that's how I got published. So basically, I was published with my first book called Rules Law Baseball. And um, I remember uh, 
uh, I had the idea for the book maybe around 1976, 77. And then my father passed away in 1979. I didn't do anything for a while with it because I had already a couple of rejections. So my wife said, look downstairs in your book library, see who's, who's publishing baseball books. So I did. And um, Stein Day was one of them. And it was just a hit or miss thing because the editor loved baseball and that's how it happened. And so, um, so they published that book and they published uh, also a book called uh, uh, Aaron to Zipfell from Hank Aaron to, um, I mean, some uh, from Tommy Aaron, Hank brother to, um, to, uh, to a guy named Bud Zipfell, which was a, was, was a book about all players who appeared in the box score in the sixties. We did no overlap though. So these were all players who debuted in the sixties. That book didn't sell quite as well because I think many people thought it was the same book that we did, Aaron to Zuvering. But it still was a great experience covering guys who debuted during the 1960s. So basically, that's how it happened. It's not easy to get published, by the way. It's um, it's it's, it's a difficult thing. Um, and I, I don't know how the book business is now as compared to yesteryear, but um, but you, you, you have to um, send it out to different people. Some people get agents. I did have an agent for a while for my first book, and it was almost published by Lippincott, but they decided against it. Uh, but I kept at it after my father passed, and um, here we are. And the book coming out at the end of March, Yankee Stories Untold, an insider's memoir from Ruth to Jeter. Now, if I were behind the desk at a publishing house, my question would be, uh, Mr. Marazzi, Everybody and his brother has written a book about the Yankees. And that's something I, in fact, said about my own podcast. Everybody and his brother does a baseball podcast. Right. And right. yet I went ahead and did it. And <laughs> it hasn't dropped like a rock, which is what I thought it would do. But uh -huh. how did, how did, how would you answer that question if you heard it? Everybody's already written a Yankee book. Well, I understand that. Um, I try to, what I try to do is I try to put a fresh perspective on a lot of things, a, a lot of players that I had personal contact with or, or people that I contact with involving players. For instance, um, take a Babe Ruth. Obviously, I couldn't interview Babe Ruth on, on my radio show, but I did meet a man that year was 19 in the summer of 1997 at Old Timers Day in the Yankee dugout. His name was Ray Kelly. He was, he was one of Babe Ruth's bat boys or mascots, they call them. So my first radio show I did in 1997, I had him as my guest. And so I did a lot of, of material in the Babe Ruth chapter covering Ray, Ray Kelly, who was basically an unknown, okay? But he told me great stories about his experiences with Babe Ruth, okay? And then I also got to know Babe Ruth's granddaughter, his only biological granddaughter that we know of. Her name is Linda Ruth Tassetti. She lives in Connecticut. She's been a speaker at Silver Sluggers. She told me many stories about her grandfather and their lives. So what I did was, I of course, I used some bio information about Babe Ruth that everybody knows, but I try to push a put a fresh perspective about Babe Ruth uh, from my experiences dealing with someone who was connected with Babe Ruth, and those two people were Ray Kelly and also his granddaughter. Um, I did a chapter on Bob Shepard, which I don't think anybody has ever done. He was the Yankees PA announcer. And he actually trained me to be um, a backup to his backup. So there's a lot of fresh material there that people have never heard of. And um, um, I got to be very close with the guy who caught Roger Maris's home run ball, Sal Durante. So the first part of that chapter is Sal Durante tell, telling everybody 
how he caught Roger Maris's ball and what happened subsequent to that. So there's a lot of fresh material there that no one has ever seen before and, and no one has ever read before. That is a book I'm absolutely going to latch on to and read. The chapter I read since I was trying to pick a certain chapter to read besides your first trip to Yankee Stadium was the chapter of one of my two favorite baseball announcers. One was Bob Murphy. I called him my baseball teacher at long distance. The other one was Phil Rizzuto. And okay. you wouldn't believe it now, hearing my voice, but once upon a time before my voice broke, I could do a fair imitation of Phil Rizzuto. And so we would be out playing <laughs> wiffle ball, myself and my, my friends from the neighborhood. And yeah. I would be I'd have a great big old giant jawbreaker, the biggest ones you could get. And I'd have it jammed over to one side, and I'd be Phil Rizzutoing as I'm pitching the ball. And, every, and of course, every play was, holy cow! You know, I'd yeah. love that. So you wrote a really good chapter about that, one of my idols, Phil Rizzuto. Well, let me ask you a question. You, you, read, you, you, you read the chapter. Do you think there was some new material there that you never heard of before? Absolutely. I love the story about the cow on the day that they did for him oh, yeah. on Rizzuto Day. Yeah, Huckleberry the cow. Exactly. To this day, my, my sister's got a dog, and the dog's name is Finn. And when I'm petting him, I call him, you Huckleberry, you. <laughs> <laughs> and well, well, Phil Rizzuto, I got to know Phil pretty well, because I had press credentials at the Yankee Stadium for many years. And... Uh, uh, I, I was just doing an interview with him uh, years ago. It was he was during a game, by the way. He said to me, "See me in the middle of the game when I'm off the air." And I sat with him and a guy named Herb Gorin, who was a writer years ago in New York. And um, so a lot of material that I did with Phil, going back to probably the '90s or early '80s, '80s or '90s, I used as a chapter in this book. And so, um, of course, he went through his career and so on, and. Uh, 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 he told me some good stuff, like he grew up in Brooklyn, but um, I think he was a Giants fan. He was there today the that Carl Hubble struck out those five or six great players in a row, oh, wow. including Babe Ruth. And um, he, told me, he, he told me a lot of great things and how he almost went to the Mexican League to to play and uh, how he got involved in broadcasting with Mel Allen and, and um, uh, just a very interesting guy. And you would be interested because he was involved with a guy named Eddie Lucas, who was blind. Now, Eddie Lucas lost his sight when he was, I believe, 12 years old. He was hit by a ball. It was a day Bobby Thompson in his home run in 1951. And he was hit in the eye with a ball. I think he already had some kind of eye problem. Anyway, to make a long story short, um, Eddie met Phil Rizzuto. And uh, Phil and Eddie got close. It became a lifetime relationship. Eddie went through a divorce. Phil Rizzuto testified at the hearing, and and Eddie Lucas was the first blind man to give him custody of his children. And based on, I think, a major part of Phil Rizzuto's endorsement of, of, of Eddie Lucas and the kind of guy he was. So I also got a picture in the book of Eddie Lucas interviewing Bernie Williams 1982 uh, as part of the Phil Rizzuto chapter. And of course, when you talk to Rizzuto, you got to talk Yogi Berra. They were they were together like salt and pepper. They went together and the, they were together in the bowling alley business. You know, two Italian guys. 
that were friends together. They played together. And Phil Rizzuto, one of my favorite stories is he met his wife pinch hitting for Joe DiMaggio. In 1941, Rizzuto was a uh, rookie uh, uh, on the Yankee team. In 1941, of course, was the year that DiMaggio hit in 56 straight games. Well, DiMaggio was supposed to uh, speak at a fireman's banquet uh, in the postseason. And the day of the banquet, his wife, Dorothy Arnold at the time, she had a son, a baby boy. So Joe said to Phil Rizzuto, Phil, would you pinch hit for me? Because my wife had a baby today, and I guess I'll be at the hospital with her and so on. So Phil said, Joe, they're going to get a rookie, Phil Rizzuto, and they're waiting for Joe DiMaggio at this banquet. Phil said, just go and do it. Don't worry about it. So the guy that ran the banquet, his name was Emil Esselborn, and um, he had Phil to his house before he took him to the banquet, I guess. And um, Mr. Esselborn had five daughters, and uh, one of his daughters, was her name was Cora. Phil met her, was love at first sight, and that's how he met his wife, pinch hitting for Joe DiMaggio. Beautiful. And he talked about Cora. If there was a broadcast went by, especially in the later years, when he didn't talk about Cora, somebody would notice that he didn't. Right. His, his subjects were Cora and cannolis and leaving to beat the traffic. You just right. had to love that man. Well, George Grant, who's a good friend of mine, lives in Connecticut. He he worked with Phil Rizzuto and Tom Seaver for a couple of years. And he told me this, this stuff about the cannolis that Phil didn't trust a lot of people who sent cannolis. There was one particular bakery, I guess, that, sent the, that he trusted. And um, he would often give the cannolis away. But he said the stuff about the cannolis was a little bit hyped up. But he said, Phil, really, there's only one one particular source that he would actually eat the cannoli. Beautiful. Talking with Rich Morazzi. And you got to do something which I found fascinating. Between 89 and 2004, you got to umpire Yankee Old Timers Day. And I don't, right. even, I don't even know if Old Timers Day still happens. But I will say this. I was at Yankee Old Timers Day in 1990. And I never, honestly, I never thought for a minute about who the umpire might be. But how, right. did, that, how did that come about? How well, did, did that be the umpire? I did a column for Yankees Magazine uh, called It's a Rule. And so it was, it was a rules it was a rules column involving Yankee plays over the years that related to the baseball rule book. And so one day I went to um, my editor and I said, what's my chances of umpiring the old timers game? He said, let me talk to people involved with that. And so they had three local umpires from New York, amateur umpires. And uh, of course you could always have a fourth umpire because, you know, in baseball you use four umpires. So, that's how I got involved. This this one guy hired me, and I worked for uh, you know, like you mentioned, so many years in a row, from 1989 to 2013, I believe it was. It was a great experience being out on the field, and was addressing sometimes in the locker room with the old timers, uh, sometimes with the regular umpires that day too, and I did the plate for three years, but I enjoyed working second base because I could run around in the outfield, and I say, well, here's where Joe DiMaggio played and Mickey Mantle. Same turf. And so it was just a great, of course, it was just an exhibition game. But um, I was so excited to just be on the field for all those years and living a dream. So what can I tell you? That's, that's, that's what came about. We've been talking with Rich Marazzi, his new book coming out the end of March, 
The Yankee Stories Untold, an insider's memoir from Ruth to Jeter. You can find it wherever you find books. And Rich has also written about the 1950s from Aaron to Zuberink. He's done talk shows. He's been rule guru, if you will, for 24 of the baseball teams. And Rich, I'm glad you took a few minutes and joined me on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Well, I appreciate being with you, Don. And um, I can tell you're a real baseball fan. And uh, it's always good talking to real baseball fans. Back with a wrap if you keep it right where you got it. I'm having such a problem at work. It's the second time this month. I've got two computers down, and I can't get my computer repair company to come to the office to fix them. I think we are too busy with other bigger companies to help us. You know, I was having the same problem until we met Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office. Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when our computers are not working properly. I need someone who can see what's wrong and fix it. On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the internet these days. They've been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years, and they have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web at courtlandcomputerservices.com or by phone at 732-356-8860. 732-356-8860, courtlandcomputerservices.com. Tell them you heard about them on the Baseball Lifer podcast and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of services. We're back on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Don Wardlow here. And that sure was fun talking to Rich Marazzi about his book, Yankee Stories Untold, From Ruth to Jeter. Now, there's some things that have happened during the week, which normally I would have got them in before the guest shot. Today, I wanted to talk about Mel Allen at some length. So here are some of the events that have been going on in baseball. A couple of closers have signed their new contracts. The Astros signed Josh Hader, and the Pirates signed Aroldis Chapman. And Hader, in particular, is cashing in big time. He got a $95 million deal over five years, and that's the biggest free agent deal the Astros have done since they signed outfielder Carlos Lee back in 2006. Now, three new men have been named to the Hall of Fame since we were together last. They are career third baseman Adrian Beltre, Minnesota Twins star Joe Maurer, and Colorado Rockies star Todd Helton. And what makes Maurer and Helton so special is they spent their careers from beginning to end with their teams, Maurer with the Twins and Helton with the Colorado Rockies. My partner and I broadcast games of his when he was with the New Haven Ravens, the Colorado Rockies Farm Club. 
So Helton joins Mariano Rivera, Vladimir Guerrero, and Derek Jeter as future Hall of Famers, which Jim Lucas and I broadcast when they were minor leaguers. I want to thank you for listening to the Baseball Lifer podcast this week, and hope you come back next week. Until then, this is Don Wardlow. Have a good week. Yeah.